any of you ever had that experience of thinking something was going in a certain direction, probably a positive one, and then experiencing that it just suddenly took a turn that you were not expecting at all? You know, something seems to be going really well, everything's lining up, stuff's working, and then just out of nowhere, hard turn to the left. Some of you may have had this happen in a, in a sports context, right? You go out, you're playing a team that's not ranked very highly in the league, or in the standings, however that's calculated, and for the first set or the first period or the first half, it goes exactly as you expect. You're racking up way more points than they are, you're dominating, the momentum's all going in your direction, and then you go to the break and you come back out to play more, and they're just mopping the floor with you. All the momentum seems to have changed. What? We're not doing anything any different. What, what's happening here? What, what happened? Maybe you've experienced this in a work context. Uh, maybe you've uh, applied for a new job, for instance, and uh, the initial contact over the phone or email was very positive. You do an interview. That seems very positive. You get the sense that, wow, they, they're basically offering me this job. They just... It seems like it's just a formality now to the paperwork and the letter of offer and you sign and everything's good and you're making plans already and then out of nowhere you get the follow-up call or email, oh, we've decided to cut this position or, or go with somebody else. What, what did, it seemed like you were basically offering me the job. What's happening? Sadly, some of you might even know this feeling in the context of a relationship. You think everything's going great, you're, you're moving in this direction, things are developing, and then out of nowhere you get that, that conversation that begins, we need to talk. It can feel disoriented when you think things are moving in a positive direction and suddenly the hammer falls or things go sideways on you. And today's psalm can really feel a little bit like that. In fact, it kind of ends in such a strange way. Sometimes you don't even hear it read in full. We only read the first little bit of it because the end can seem really so stern. Um, so we'll turn to Psalm 95 and uh, we'll see just why this is. Hopefully you can, you can kind of see what I'm talking about. I'd invite you to stand as we typically do for our sermon passage. Psalm 95. Many of you, you know, if you grew up in a, in a bit more liturgical type of a context or you have experience with that, you'll recognize this is a common uh, call to worship. It's often used that way. Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, These are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is God's word. You can have a seat.
Now, as I said, this, this is a relatively well-known psalm, whether you grew up in a, in a more liturgical tradition that would read this regularly, uh, whether you grew up perhaps uh, doing readings in the back of your hymn book. Sometimes this one is probably in the back of every hymn book ever because it's just it's a great call to worship. But that ending, we just, we just kind of don't quite know what to do with that. It seems really strange. It begins with this, let's worship the Lord. He's amazing. And it ends with, those guys were really bad and I was really angry with them. It can kind of be a strange thing to wrap our heads around. As with our psalm last week, this one's anonymous. There's no superscription giving an author or a context. Uh, but I suspect, and many scholars say the same, that this would have been used in the worship of ancient Israel, much as it continues to be used in Christian worship as, as a call to gather and to bring our praises before the Lord because he's the one who is worthy of them. So let's look at that first section. The first section has four lettuces, if you will call to worship is more or less repeated four times using just slightly different words and ideas. And this is a feature of of Hebrew poetry. The scholars call it parallelism. And that's where the author will present an idea and then present a second corresponding idea. It works in one of two ways. Either the author will say this and also a thing basically just like it, or he will say this and now a concept totally the opposite of it. In this case, he actually does it four times, so we get, we get it doubled. Now, that's oversimplifying it some, but you get the idea. We have not just two here, but four things the writer exhorts God's people to do in these opening verses. It begins with, O come, let us do these things. Come is the standard translation. It's actually uh, a little bit more directive and a little bit more concrete than that. It being just the Hebrew word for, for walk. Obviously, walk is a metaphor, too. The people have probably already done their walking as they gather for worship and are, are gathered to do that. But this is, this is the same kind of imperative and directive, for instance, that the Lord gives to Abraham. Go, Abraham, actually expecting him to do something, not just sort of a nice, a nice word picture. Calling for action, and that's what we're going to see as this passage goes along. So come, let us sing unto the Lord. Right off the start, I'm just going to have to admit, I'm probably going to mess a little bit with your cherished memories of this psalm, especially if you learned it in, a, in, in the King James Version of the Bible, or you memorized it as a Sunday school verse or something along those lines. Especially if uh, you grew up in a tradition that used it regularly. Some of these psalms that were used a lot in Christian worship, we, we kind of keep translating them the same way we always have since 1611, even though sometimes when you actually look at the Hebrew, you go, hmm, is, that actually, is that actually what it's saying? So the Hebrew word here, where, where it says, come let us sing to the Lord, it's not the standard word for sing. There is a, a simple Hebrew word for sing, this is not it, though. The word here means to cry aloud. It can be used as a cry of distress, or it can be used as a cry of joy. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Second thing, 
The idea of making a joyful noise, that's kind of been this Christian cliche for, for a long time, right? It's especially applied to, to those of us like myself who are not particularly gifted in the singing department, and we say things like, well, he can't carry a tune in a bucket, but at least he can make a joyful noise to the Lord, right? The problem is the idea of a joyful noise isn't really a necessary aspect of this, this Hebrew word either. I mean, you can infer joy from the context, of course, because hopefully gathering to worship the Lord is joyful. But again, the word just means shouting. It's actually the word that's used to describe what the Israelites did when they gathered around the walls of Jericho. And they raised a loud shout before the Lord and, and the walls came a-tumbling down, as the song says. It can be used to describe shouting in triumph or victory. The normal use of this word actually more cases than not, has a decidedly military feel to it. Third thing, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving, or perhaps a song of thanksgiving. Seems pretty accurate. In Hebrew, the standard idiom for coming into someone's presence is coming before the face of. Again, that's a metaphor, but it's, it's, it's kind of a concrete metaphor, right? If we, if we talk about coming before the face of God, that's something maybe we feel like taking a little bit more care to do rather than just coming into his presence in a sort of abstract sense. Fourth thing, let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Again, the joyful aspect of this line is frequently supplied, but the Hebrew literally just says, shout to him in song. Same shout word as before. I don't know how you shout a song and have it still sound like a song rather than just shouting, but that's what it says. I think many of us, due to our history with this passage, probably assume one of two things, maybe both, about this. I think, first of all, we tend to assume that these are about music, and second, we tend to assume that this, these are about joy or, or excitement, or positive emotions at any rate. Now, it's certainly possible to infer joy from the context would hope worship would be joyful, and music is mentioned at least a bit, but the main thing the Hebrew text seems to be emphasizing is not emotions or musicality, it seems to be emphasizing volume, that worship is loud, as this psalm describes it, more than anything else. In other words, it sounds like the response it's, it's trying to get at and encourage us toward is going to sound a lot more like a loud crowd at a football game rather than what a typical worship service sounds like. So a bit of a different picture, maybe, than what we would typically come up with in our imaginations. So first of all, we've got four lettuces. Made it through those. Now we have a section about hands. So what's the reason given for the shouting of God's praise? Well, the Lord is great. He's the greatest, the passage says. And then there are some descriptions of God's greatness, which center around the work of his hands. First thing is his hands made the world. God's hands made the created world we see around us. Our psalmist covers the major directions, the high places and the deep places, the sea and the dry land. These are sort of Hebraisms for these places and everything in between. Like these are the extremes of where you can go. So the Lord made them and then of course everything else in between it's probably also important to point out that our culture would think of things like the sea and the high places, the mountains. We tend to associate those with, with beauty, uh, 
uh, right? We go on vacations to places like Banff or Jasper. Oh, look at the beautiful mountains and the beautiful scenery. Or we go on a cruise out onto the ocean. I, I don't choose to do this, but some of you may, may have done this or may think it sounds like a really nice idea. The ancient Israelites, though, when they thought of, and ancient peoples in general, when they thought of the sea and when they thought of the mountains, they didn't think primarily of beautiful places. They thought of scary places. The weather in the mountains. There's avalanches and rock slides up there and terrible storms. Mountains are scary places. The sea, the same. There's, there's terrible storms on the sea. The sea is unpredictable and violent. These are places of, of chaos. They're scary and dangerous. In other words, we think when we read the Lord made the sea and he made the mountains, we think, oh, God is so creative and he's a God of beauty and wonder. The ancients probably read this and thought, the Lord made the sea and the mountains. He is really, really powerful that he made those dangerous things and can control them in some way. So that makes the response in verse 6 so fitting. Let us worship, that is to say, bow down. And let us bow down and let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. He repeats the same idea three times using different words. All that to say, the Lord is very, very powerful and the appropriate response to him is, is reverence, awe, maybe even some fear mixed in with there. So the first thing the Lord's hands did is made the world. The second thing the psalmist emphasizes is his hands care for his people, his sheep. So we have this, this picture of reverence before God because of his power and his glory and his might in creation. And then we also have this description of the Lord's hands caring for his people, his flock. I think the contrast there should make the second point even more pronounced. I love this mixing of metaphors in verse 7. We, we, are, we are the people of his pasture and the, the sheep of his hands. In Psalm 100, we get the same thing, but it's as you would expect. The sheep in the pasture, the people in the hands. This mixing of the metaphors, though, I think it serves to illustrate the point that sheep and people in God's sight pretty interchangeable because that's how we are. The sheep-people comparison is a strong one. But to keep the focus on God, it's important to point out two likely areas that, that his hands come into play with his sheep. And these aren't always mutually exclusive. First, it's a picture of God's provision for us. Much of the work of a shepherd, the, the labor that he goes through, is about providing and caring for the sheep, providing them food, providing them with protection. Second, though, it's, it's also a picture of guidance and, when necessary, correction. And as I said, these are not mutually exclusive things. Humans, like sheep, are stubborn creatures who frequently resist what is best for them. And so our Lord, like a wise shepherd, must sometimes, in order to provide for us, move us along, away from things that are bad for us and toward things that are good for us. If you're talking about livestock, that usually means moving them from one place where the pasture is not so good anymore because they've eaten a lot of it into a place where there's more food. And frequently they resist it and need to be encouraged along, sometimes quite forcibly. Humans are the same. Sometimes in order to provide and care for us, the Lord must also bring his hand of correction 
in order to guide us to a place of greater flourishing. So we've talked about lettuce, we've talked about hands, now we want to talk about hearts. And this gets us to the heart of this psalm. This is kind of, though, where it takes this strange turn. Weird. As I worked through this psalm, and sometimes felt like I felt like I was kind of just beating my head against it, it seemed clear that the heart of the matter really does have to do with our hearts. That's what the Lord's driving at all along. It'll get clear as we get closer to the end of our time together. But let's start unpacking these last few verses. One of the ways this psalm takes this turn that it does, it's a shift in time frame, right? The first almost seven verses are addressing the people of God in the present time. Come, let's worship the Lord. He's amazing. Let's bow down and worship him. But then at the end of verse 7, it shifts back to a previous time in Israel's history, right? Don't harden your hearts like your fathers did back in the olden days when, when you were following Moses around out of Egypt. So we go from the present time to something that happened a long time ago. In fact, we're pointed back to a specific instance in the book of Exodus. The mention of what happened at Massa or Meribah points to the one of many occasions when the Israelites, after leaving Egypt, grumbled and complained against Moses and assumed that the Lord was not going to look after them. In this case, it was over a lack of drinking water, which seemed to be an issue that came up again and again. So it's pointing towards this specific item in the history of Israel, especially in the desert. There's something important to note here, though. This psalm talks about how they hardened their hearts against Moses and therefore against the Lord. If you actually turn back to that passage in Exodus, though, it doesn't talk about hardening their hearts. It just says they grumbled and quarreled. But if you know your story really well, you will know that the language of hardening the heart plays a big part in the Exodus narrative, right? Who is it that has always hardened his heart in that story? Pharaoh, yes, over and over again. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let the people of Israel go, and Pharaoh hardens his heart. Or sometimes he will agree after the Lord smites him with a few plagues, and Pharaoh will say, okay, fine, Israelites can go free. And then just as they're about to go, he'll come to Moses, no, change my mind. And it says, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh hardened his own heart, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Over and over again, though, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. The psalmist is using that same language, though, of, of what Pharaoh did as an enemy of God's people to describe how God's people are now acting. That's, that's a pretty serious indictment of how they're following or, or not following, that they've become tragically just like Pharaoh, right? They decide for a time, yeah, we'll follow the Lord. We'll get on board. We'll get in line with what he's doing. The Lord's great. He's going to provide for us. And then something difficult happens, and they go back on their word. They harden their hearts. So don't harden your hearts. Specifically, don't harden your hearts like your fathers did. There's this specific mention of what happened at, at Massa, Meribah, the mention of the 40 years in the wilderness, that signals kind of, okay, we're not just talking about what happened there. We're talking about the whole wilderness experience. 
Because at the end of that incident at Massa and Meribah, that's not when God says, okay, you guys are going to wander in the desert for 40 years. That comes later in the book of, uh, book of Numbers. You remember the story, right? It's a much later time. They've been through some incidents already. They've, they've made it to the borders of the promised land the first time. And you remember the story, 12 men went to spy on Canaan. You remember learning that song, Once Upon a Time, when you were a little kid? I see a few nods. Anyhow, you, you remember the story, but I'll give you a little refresher. Uh, Moses sends 12 guys into the promised land to have a look around and see what kind of a land is it that the Lord's giving us. And 10 of those men come back and say, it's a terrible land, everybody. They're, it's full of huge people. They're giants. They have cities with walls that go all the way up to heaven. We're, we're hopeless if we're going to go in there. And then only two of the men that go out to spy the land, they come back and say, this land is awesome. Look, look how big the grapes are. Look, look how rich this land is. This is a beautiful land. And yeah, the cities are big and so are the people, but the Lord's with us. We can take it. And then this big revolt and riot starts in the Israelite camp. And because only two guys brought a good report and 10 guys brought a bad report, all the people are swayed to the bad report side. And they want to stone Moses and they want to go back to Egypt. And needless to say, the Lord is not very pleased with them. And that's when they're sentenced to wandering around in the desert for 40 years until all that generation finally dies off and the next generation can then have a chance at following the Lord into the promised land. Basically, the Lord gave them what they wanted, right? They said, we can't take this land. And the Lord, okay then, I guess you don't. You can wander in the desert for 40 years. So why do I go into all this? I think the main reason is to underscore the point this psalmist is making. Don't repeat the mistakes of the past. Specifically, don't stubbornly resist accepting the very thing that God is trying to give you, which is a good thing. So what do we make of all this? Because I think we understand that in our minds. We understand, yes, do not make the mistakes of the past. Sometimes the Lord gives us things that aren't easy, but we still have to do it. Okay, what do we make of the fact that this psalm takes such a strange turn at the end? Right? Because we have a lot of psalms that do the reverse thing. They start with things are bad. They take a stern or, or sad kind of a tone. And then by the end, we get to, ah, but the Lord is good and things are going to be okay. And this psalm seems almost the reverse of what we would expect. Let's think back on some of those examples from the start. If you had a, if you were playing a, a sporting competition of some sort and it went really well at the start and you came back after halftime and suddenly it was going terribly you'd have some reevaluating to do right you'd have to think okay what did something change uh, is did our opponent suddenly bring out some new play or technique that they they weren't using in the first half how do we defend against that or or did are we doing something differently than we were doing before you'd have to hopefully pretty quickly go back over that first half and reevaluate it and see if something's changed. If it was a relationship that kind of went sideways on you, then uh, you need to do the same thing, right? We, we've all been there where you kind of go back over how something's been and go, were, th were there clues all along that should have clued me into this? Or has something changed? Or at any rate, you, you try to work hard at reevaluating the situation. So I tried to leave us some clues 
as we went through the text to help us in that regard. I think the main thing was my caution in overemphasizing the joyful aspect of those first few verses. That's not to say that joyful worship isn't appropriate. It's not even to say that joyful worship isn't what the text is calling us to do. But it is to point out that the emotional response we have is probably not appropriate to make the focus of our worship. I talked also a little bit about how the, the pictures and images of God's hand are not just about provision for us in the sense of giving us the things that we want, but the Lord's hand is also about guidance, and sometimes the provision he wants to give us takes some getting there. So did we miss something? Or at least do we tend in that direction? Possibly. I'll say this, it's easy to read some of those opening verses about worshiping God, and it sounds exciting, and it sounds big, and it sounds impressive, and we get really excited, and that's good. But we need to be really clear about why we would find worshiping God to be so appealing. Are we more, are we more attracted to the possibility of, of excitement, or to the buzz of emotional stimulation? Are we coming before the Lord for what we get out of it, kind of get pumped up a little bit to face our life? Our week ahead? Is our worship in danger of becoming a form of entertainment? And these are all important questions that Christians, especially in North America, need to be honest about. If we are valuing worship primarily for how it makes us feel excited or stimulated or comforted, then the end of this psalm is really going to seem out of place because the first part of it seems very affirmative and makes us feel good. And the second part seems not very affirmative and makes us feel possibly bad or guilty or at least sternly warned. However, I think that sense of whiplash will be less if, if we have a more biblical understanding of worship. Look at verse 3. Why should we come into worship with shouts of praise and songs of thanksgiving? Because it makes us feel good? No, because for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. If our worship is about the one who deserves our full attention, our full reverence, and our full devotion, it's about the one who made the universe and everything that's in it. It's about the one who rightly orders our lives, who we depend upon totally. Then it's certainly not out of place to hear a warning about the dangers of hearing what he says and then not doing it, right? If, if all of those other things are true of who God is in his character and in his activity, then it's appropriate to hear a warning about, hey, if, if that's the one who's going to give us instructions, if that's the one we're worshiping, then don't just ignore what he's telling you if it doesn't seem easy or if you just don't feel like it. You see how this works? If, if we mistakenly make worship about ourselves, and we can do that more easily than we think, than we admit, this psalm is going to seem like it's, it's pumping us up only to let us down. But if we make worship about God as it's supposed to be, then this psalm makes perfect sense. God is worthy of our most sincere worship, of, of the most that we can bring in worship. But... He's also worthy of our most devoted obedience as well. This series has been about God 
our rock. Verse 1 of this psalm says specifically that God is the rock of our salvation. We might expect it to end you know, on a more happy and excited note, but there's something beautiful about the fact that even if this psalm has to get a little bit stern with the need for reverence and the need for obedience, it still starts with his grace in saving us. Right off the start, the rock of our salvation in the very first verse. I've said it many times throughout this series, and I'll say it again. God is our rock in whatever we face. Whatever we face is always grounded the fact that he's already saved us. Right? The fact that we can trust in God in whatever goes on in our life, whatever hardships, whatever difficulties, whatever uncertainties may come, God is our rock in that and we can trust that he's our rock because of what he's already done for us in the past. Because he's already saved us. The ability to face hardships in life and the need for continued growth in obedience and faithfulness, all of those things find their foundation in what God has already done for us. We keep coming back to this because it's just so foundational. We keep coming back to this. It's the gospel, and we need reminding of it. We need reminding of it more than we maybe think we need reminding of it. I know I need reminding of this on a regular basis. It can sometimes seem silly to talk to yourself, and some people think it's a sign of being crazy, but Whenever we're facing challenges and uncertainties or we're feeling doubt or guilt or anything that threatens to throw us off course, it doesn't hurt to sit ourselves down, remind ourselves of a few important truths of our faith. Ask ourselves some questions even if we have to do it that way. So has God shown himself to be a rock and demonstrated his love and faithfulness by sending Jesus to be our savior? Has Jesus' death saved us from the guilt of our sins? Does his resurrection give us power to walk in new life? Do we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us even now to guide us into all truth? And does he continue to remind us of the foundational truths of our faith? Do we have eternal hope to being raised to a life new and indestructible with Christ on that great day? If we can answer yes to those things, because those are the foundational truths of the gospel, then we can truly affirm that the Lord is the rock of our salvation. He has saved us. He has saved us from the worst problems we had. He continues to save us as as we learn to die to sin and walk in obedience day to day. And he will save us ultimately when we dwell with him in eternity. So let's make that the foundation of our praise of him, our adoration of him, our respect for him, and our obedience of him. Right? These things are not disconnected, and they're not a this way and then that. These are all things that fit together as proper responses to a God who is great, a God who has acted mightily for us, and a God who ultimately cares for us and wants what is best for us. So praise him today. Praise him at all times. It is always appropriate to do so. Lift, lift our voices to him. Even shout. But also 
in the midst of doing all of that, let's just make sure that we hear and that we listen, that is, obey God's voice as well. Let us pray.